The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Here's your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. It's episode number 500. And my guest today, even though he didn't play uh, baseball, he is a Houston legend in my mind. Uh, you may <laughs> I talked to him earlier and he said you may have to be old to remember him, but I think most of you will. Mr. Dan Pastorini, quarterback, Houston Oilers. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on here. i got to correct you. I did play baseball. I, uh, I went to Santa Clara on a baseball scholarship and uh, had the fortune of playing in Alaska with the Alaska Gold Panthers in 1968 with the current uh, pitching coach for the Houston Astros, Brent Strong. Strongy and me and, and uh, Dave Kingman, Jim Barr, Bob Gallagher, Bob Boone, we're all in that uh, Alaska team, and we all played together. Played against uh, Brent um, at Santa Clara when he went to USC. Had some some good games. Actually, I was also drafted by the New York Mets, and I was a shortstop, and I played the outfield a little bit. And I like you know I was a pretty good hitter, and I was drafted by the Mets. I think in 1968, and they wanted to change me. They wanted to make me a pitcher. And I uh, I said, well, geez, I, I, you know, I like playing every day. You know, I'm a pretty good hitter. You know, he said, well, yeah, but we want you for your arm strength. We want to make a pitcher out of you. And I did pitch a little bit in college and high school. Well, that's so I a... Turned them down. Oh. I turned them down. And that was the year they drafted a couple guys by the name of Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver, and the next year they went on the the Miracle Mets, right? And we went four nine and one, and then the next year we went one and thirteen. And the year after that we went one and thirteen. And I was really seriously considering my my profession choices. So yeah, I did. But I did play baseball. I love baseball. I like baseball a lot more than football right now. So let's go back to your high school days. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, uh, well, I grew up in Sonora, California, but I went to uh, boarding school in San Jose, California, at a college prep school called Bellman College Preparatory, which was a Jesuit institution. So I boarded there for four years, and then I moved two miles down the street on uh, San Carlos uh, Avenue and down to University of Santa Clara, where I spent four years there and then uh, playing baseball and football. 
actually didn't play that much football because I was injured most of the time. And then uh, was drafted by the Oilers in 1971, and I've been here ever since. So you say that you were injured most of the time, and if you look Dan Pastorini up on uh, Wikipedia, it says you were known as a tough quarterback, and you only missed five games. Well, yeah, that was that was in in the pros. I uh, it's kind of a survival situation, but you get hurt, you get you lose your job. But uh, in college, it was a little different. I just uh, had some freak accidents. The first snap I took my sophomore year, um, I got hit in the ankle and broke my ankle. And then uh, my junior year, I tore my medial collateral ligament against uh, Villanova at Santa Clara about the fourth game into the year. Then my senior year, we played Villanova in uh, Villanova and uh, tore my medial collateral again. So I was out till the last two games of the year. I think I played Humboldt State and uh, Long Beach State. And I had, I guess, pretty good games. And I was selected to play in the East-West Shrine game in 1971 or 70, whenever it was. And then the uh, senior bowl that year. And then I was drafted right after that. Yeah, you were you were drafted third overall in 1971 in a draft known as the year of the quarterback. I don't know if you knew that. It was Jim Plunkett was the first pick. Archie Manning was second and you were third. So they had to think very highly of you to pick, uh, to pick you that high. What did, what did you know or think about living or playing in Houston? I knew nothing about Houston. In fact, when I came back from Mobile, Alabama, after the uh, after the Senior Bowl, I landed at um, in Houston for a layover, and I just remember looking out the terminal and seeing nothing but flat. And I, you know, growing up in California and the Sierra Nevada mountains. I was always, I always, I love the mountains and uh, I just couldn't believe this place is so flat. So I really didn't know that much about it. And then when I was drafted, I got here, found out, fell in love with the people here in the state of Texas. And I became a Texan officially, I think about five years ago, I was awarded citizenship because I spent most of my adult life here in the state, great state of Texas, so they made me a full-blown Texan. So. so tell me about your early career. How were the Oilers? We weren't very good. Um, we were kind of the bottom feeders. Uh, we were in a very tough division, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. So we were kind of the bottom of the rung. Went through several coaches in five years, went through uh, – my first coach was Ed Hughes, and then Bill Peterson took over for two years, which was the big, biggest joke I've ever played for in my life. And then uh, Sid Gilman took over as general manager and then became the head coach and kind of turned everybody around. It was a strike year, and uh, we had a short season. And then uh, the next year, Bum Phillips took over in 75, and uh, we turned things around and started winning after that. So it was kind of fun, uh, my last five years there. So I was telling you, I was telling you before we uh, 
before we started recording that I was a big fan of Billy White Shoes Johnson. He was like the first guy that would do the uh, end zone celebrations, and it was just really cool. And I was a big fan of Kenny Burroughs because he wore the number double zero, and you were able to play with both of those guys. I was. I was. Kenny, uh, when I first came down here, I think Kenny came from New Orleans the year before me, and he wasn't used to people overshooting him. He was a pretty fast guy, and I was blessed with a pretty strong arm. I remember the first up pattern I threw to him, I shot him by about five or six yards. He said, nobody's ever done that before. I said, we'll get used to it, run faster. <laughs> so we learned, to, we learned to hook up, and uh, he was quite prolific on the long ball. And uh, Billy was the type of guy that you could get him the ball with the line of scrimmage just on a little quick screen and he he had these jitterbug moves and he could he could uh he was running at top speed in one step. I mean he was just a an exciting football player to watch. But I remember when he did his dance there were two people that did the dance. There was Elmo Wright who really first started it from the University of Houston. In fact, I played with Elmo in the East West Shrine game. And then Billy, Billy White just came in. And I remember pulling Billy aside the first time he scored a touchdown. And I said, we don't do that around here. I said, I don't, we don't need to piss off these guys any more than they are after we score. <laughs> I wasn't a big fan of it. So then he scored three times one game and I walked up to him. I said, Billy, forget what I said. Don't you just go ahead and dance your ass off and that'll be fine. <laughs> so things changed for the Oilers and for you in 1978. Uh, when they drafted Earl Campbell, that had to change things quite a bit. You probably did a lot more handing off than throwing. Well, we did. You know, Brum wanted to run it. And he was the Heisman Trophy winner. He was, you know, fantastic runner. The only drawback that Earl had was he couldn't catch very well. And I would have liked to incorporate him more in the passing game where we could, you know, give him little dunks just over the line of scrimmage and let him turn around and run over safeties instead of having to hand the ball back six yards deep and let him run through the offensive line, the defensive line and linebackers. But he was a, he was a devastating runner and a powerful runner. And, uh, you know, the motto was that kind of getting the ball at least 20 times a game and he would break one, you know, for sure. Uh, he went through some, some tough games where uh, we played Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh always seemed to have his number a little bit, but we tried to incorporate the passing game, take the pressure off of him. When we did that, then it opened up the lanes for him to, to run the football. But he certainly opened up the big passing game for us because we could, you know, I could put my hand in his stomach and he would attract the crowd. And when I stood back there to throw the ball, it opened up our passing game pretty good, pretty well. In 1979, you guys reached the AFC Championship, and this was way before replay. And you actually, do you remember the touchdown pass that wasn't to Mike Renfro? Yeah, vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had, if I had a dollar for every time that, that catch has been brought up, I'd be a millionaire right now. The, uh, yeah, we made it to the 78 playoffs and the 79 playoffs AFC championship. And, uh, the, 
79 AFC Championship in Pittsburgh got, uh, we were all banged up. Earl had a full groin. I had a full groin. Kenny Burrow had a bruised hip. I mean, we were kind of the walking wounded by the end of the season. And, uh, you know, we were managing the game pretty well. It was close. Uh, that was at the end of the third quarter. And had we gotten that, it would have tied the score. Uh, and I liked our chances going into the fourth quarter because we were able, our defense was playing as well as their defense played. I mean, we had, you know, in comparison, we had equal defenses, I think. Um, you know, we had quite a, quite a few Hall of Famers on our defense with Elton Bethay and Curly Culp, Robert Brazil. You know, all those guys played very, very well together. And um, if we could have managed the game, I think we could have taken our shots and, you know, we may have only won by a, I still think we could have won that game. A lot of people argue with me because of the stature of the Steel Curtain and the Pittsburgh Steelers and their history of winning and everything else. But everybody gets dethroned. My attitude was, had we gotten that, we'd have tied the game. We could have managed it. I think we could have taken our shots. Our defense would have kept us close and we would have won. But unfortunately, it went the other way. But that play was the resultant factor for getting instant replay into the NFL. So you can blame me for all the delays of the game <laughs> in the game today because of that, that one play. But it was, I mean, the announcers were saying, uh, Merlin Olson was one of these, said, this is a touchdown. This is, this is travesty that, you know, the Oilers you know, got robbed of this. So let's go to night. Things that happened in Pittsburgh, so. Yeah, let's go to 1980. This is something that I remember from my childhood. I mean, clear as day is when they traded you to Oakland for Kenny Stabler, who was a when I was young, I always wanted to be left handed. And so I would try to pretend I was uh, Kenny Stabler. Uh, but that I, I just remember that it was kind of like a, a, a blockbuster trade for those days. Yeah, it was. It was one of the few times I think quarterbacks were traded straight up. There's been a misconception about that. Everybody thinks that I wanted to be traded and I did not want to be traded. I had offered as a sacrificial lamb after the the loss in the AFC Championship game in 1978 when we went up there and played in the sleet and the snow and everything else. And I, I think I threw five interceptions. And I went to Bum after the season. I said, look, I said, if I'm the problem, get rid of me. And I said, I do not want to hold this team up. Uh, and if I am the problem, then, then, you know, trade me. And, you know, he settled me down. He said, look, he said, just, I know you're, you're a hot Italian blooded guy. You're competitive. He said, I know you don't mean this. He said, just go home, have a beer, relax and come back and, We'll start again next year. And I said, I told I, I kind of was insistent. I said, I don't want to hold this team back. But he said, okay, I'll make a deal. He said, if you feel the same way at the end of the year next year, then I'll trade you anywhere you want to go. So, okay, fine, fair enough. Well, you know, we went through the 79 season. As you said, we went to the AFC Championship game and the play that wasn't, you know, a touchdown and all that. And on the plane coming, I never even thought about that conversation in over a year now okay and bum comes walking back and i was sitting in the back seat on the aircraft 
junk seed and pretty well scotched up. <laughs> but he came back and said, you know, Daniel said, you're a warrior. I'm proud of you. Da, 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 da. Thanks, Bob. And the next words out of his mouth were, you still want to be traded. And I, I was shocked. I, I went, why is he asking me this? You know? And I went, well, I, I, yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I was totally caught off guard. Mm. And years later, we talked about it. And I said, why did you ask me that question? I said, I had totally forgotten about the, the year before and, and all that. I said, I, I and you brought that up and I didn't know what to say. And I said, yes. And I said, why did you ask me that question then? He said, because I didn't think you'd say yes. <laughs> he said, what I should have told you was, no, I'm not going to trade you. I said, you shouldn't have brought it up. So that was a big mistake that two gentlemen had. And uh, kind of a faux pas, but that's that's what happened. But contrary to what a lot of people think, I did not want to be traded. I wanted to finish my career here in Houston with Bum Phillips and, and the Love You Blue and all that. So just wanted to put clarification on that. So when you went to Oakland, how'd that go? Not good. I, uh, you know, I replaced, Kenny was very popular in Oakland. The fans loved Kenny, and rightly so. And Al Davis was the biggest jerk I'd ever dealt with in my life. And uh, got out there, and, and I was, you know, pushed into the starting position because you know, I, they were traded, you know, traded for their starting quarterback. And so I assumed the position. Plunkett was my backup now. Keep in mind, 10 years earlier, he was drafted ahead of us all. And uh, that that was kind of an uncomfortable feeling. And I played okay. We won a couple games. And the four games that I played, we, we split two and two. I was just kind of getting the hang of it with the offense. I mean, they, they wanted to throw the ball. It's a lot different than, than here. Uh, they wanted to throw the ball more, and they wanted to throw the ball vertically, which was fine with me. And uh, I, I had a couple problems and misreads, you know, some adjustments to make, and uh, threw quite a few interceptions. Of course, that was nothing new for Kenny Stabler either. He threw quite a few interceptions. And then uh, I broke my leg in the fifth game of the year. I broke my tibia plateau, and Blunkett took over that game. We lost that game. And then he took over and took the team to the Super Bowl. I was uh, nursing my knee. And, uh, I was back in four weeks, got the cast off, the bone had healed. I was doing rehab and getting back in shape to get back on the team. And, you know, about toward the last quarter of the season, I'm, you know, I'm ready to play. I mean, I'm ready to be activated again. And, uh, so I went to Tom Flores, the coach of the Raiders then, and I said, Thomas, can I get activated? There, you know, they had moves to make that they could have put me back in the roster. We didn't have anybody to back up Jim. And, you know, I was the quarterback that went to the AFC championship game the prior. And uh, they went with Mark Wilson. I, said, I didn't understand it. And so Tom Flores told me, it's not my call, Dan, it's Dallas' call. So I went to Al Davis. Went to 
his office and said, Al, I'd like to get activated. He says, it's not my call, Dan. It's Tom's call. So, hmm. no. I said, either 1 a.m. is lying or both of you are lying. So, because he's telling me the same thing and he just sat there and glared at me. And, you know, it's just kind of a strange cat. I, uh, when I broke my leg, I was like a cancer. Uh, before I broke my leg, he was, he was like perfect gentleman. Every, he checked with me every day. You getting everything? You okay? You need anything? I mean, I thought, man, this guy's really a nice guy. But then I saw the real side of Al Davis after that. So that was biggest mistake of my life, biggest letdown of my life, and it pretty much ended my career there. I went on to play, and I was cut the following year. Um, in training camp at the last cut of the year, I had a guaranteed contract and he refused to pay me. Hmm. So I had to go fighting through the grievance process, won the grievance, still wouldn't pay me. So I had to get a job. So I wanted to sign a contract with uh, the Rams in mid season and then got released by the Rams uh, at the end of that season. And then uh, pretty much was out of football, and I was fighting Davis in court, and I was broke, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was taking acting lessons in L.A., and then I got picked up by Philadelphia. I finished my career in Philadelphia. Went there with Dick Vermeil. Just after the season, they went to the Super Bowl where the Raiders beat them. And Sid Gilman was there, the offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach. And I guess Sid was you know, suggested he pulled me off the waivers or whatever. So when he called me, I said, I'm not, I'm not interested. I said, I'm burnt out, Dick. I'm, I'm totally burnt out. I, I just don't want to play football anymore. So he took a chance, brought me back there. We had to strike here. They paid me full salary anyway. And then after that year, he got kind of let down. We went back. It, it was a terrible year for the, Philadelphia Eagles, and then he, uh, it really weighed on Dick, and I remember having a conversation with him in his office saying, look, this is just a game, I said, don't let it kill you, I said, it killed me, and, you know, when he brought me in there, he told me, he said, look, he said, I'm going to sign you this contract, you're going to get paid no matter what for the next two years, he said, you know the system we're in because it's Sid Gilman's system, and he said, next year, we go to training camp, and you and Jaworski will go heads up. Whoever's the best quarterback will will be my starting quarterback. So, well, that's that's a fair opportunity. That's why it signed. Mm-hmm. And then he, he he quit the team after that season. Marion Campbell took over and never did get a chance to court to uh, compete in training camp with Jaworski. And so I was relegated to backup. That wasn't what I wanted to do. Finally, I just retired after that season. Done with the game. Went drag racing. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, while you're playing and you start getting closer to the end of your career, do you? I'm sure you do. You just start thinking about, okay, what can I do when I get done with football? And you went to drag racing. Well, it's something that I've always been a fan of. I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of a motorhead. I'm a big fan of fast cars, muscle cars, any kind of car that's 
that's sleek looking, has anything to do with speed. I've always been kind of a speed freak. But um, just fascinated me. I was always kind of a motorhead. And I had a lot of friends that I met through the years in drag racing. Raymond Beetle, Kenny Bernstein, Don Garlitz, Shirley, all of them. And just, uh, in fact, Beetle helped me get uh, get into drag racing. And uh, so Bobby Rowe and I had hooked up when I was playing ball in drag boats. And he, uh, he tuned my, my drag boat. Uh, we set like four world records in the drag boat while I was playing. Then I had a bad accident. Should have been killed. Kind of ended my racing career as far as playing. It was I looked at it as an off-season job. And the uh, Oilers' next contract forbid me from doing any racing. So when I was done playing, I decided to go drag racing. So we bought an operation from I went and hawk and bought a operation from uh, God. I can't remember the guy's name now. So you were. So you were actually racing? Yeah. You, were, you were driving the car? Absolutely. Oh, what's that like? It's pretty uh, pretty exciting. When I first got in the car and hit the throttle, taking my driver's license uh, approval, I guess you'd call it, you, uh, you had to do it in stages. You do a burnout, and you back up and do a launch, and do a burnout, back up and launch. Well, the first time I launched the car, it was kind of like that Star Trek Warp Factor Six, Scotty, and everything was a blur in that that burst. And it, I only went about 100 feet or 200 feet, and uh, I thought, "Wow, maybe I bit off a little more than I could chew." And then the more you drove it, the more you got familiar with speed. The more you know, everything slowed down. It's just like you, your mind catches up. And uh, I remember. You know, toward the end of my career, my guys, some guys would sit at the finish line and I'd go through the lights at 280 miles an hour. I'd see them and I'd wave at them as I went by and then hit the parachutes and grab the brake. But it was, uh, it was tough because, you know, we were an unsponsored team. We finally got sponsorship from Coors Light for three years. And then uh, they decided not to go with us and they never were able to get another sponsor. And um, I had won the Southern Nationals, my seventh race that I ever raced professionally. And that was before we had sponsorship, but then never really made it into any late rounds when Coors was on, a, on our car. But you got to win to keep the sponsors. If you don't win, you're not going to keep, you're not going to get sponsorships. And unfortunately, we ran through that. So you mentioned earlier you were doing some acting classes and you actually did a movie or two right yeah i did when i played uh was playing ball my first wife was an actress and she did a lot of b movies and we did some we did a picture together in florida and then i had an opportunity jack gelardi was a friend of mine who's head of icm out in california you know when you're when you're playing ball and stuff you have access to a lot of celebrities you have access to a lot of opportunities and you know i never i never took it seriously i never thought i was an actor i just you know some people thought i did a good job some people thought it was a joke so i don't know who to believe but I, you know i i gave it a shot and uh, 
it was funny when I got picked up by the Eagles, Ted Danson and I were the last couple guys to be considered for cheers. <laughs> oh, so, wow. So he, uh, he wound up doing, I remember John Eric Hexen, who was, uh, the star of Voyager, he and I were doing a lot of what they call readings. You'd be called up, your agent would be called and say, hey, go by this studio, go by this studio, go by this, you know. And you'd, every day you'd go for two or three readings and they'd give you a script, you know, scene, you'd read it, and if you got it, you got the part, you'd, you'd get it. If you didn't, you'd, you'd go in for the next reading and see if you could get a job. So I, I got, you know, a couple of BJ and the Bear, I did. Uh, Fantasy Island. Uh, so I did a couple of TV's deals. In fact, I I still get some checks from SAG um, on residual checks that they ship on Fantasy Island. And uh, I, I got I've auctioned the checks off because they're kind of funny. They uh, they're like two dollars and fifty cents, and after they take the taxes out, it's like a dollar seventy three. <laughs> so. Those are my residual checks for my movie career. All right. So you were also in a magazine, a popular magazine. I don't even know if people even look at these things anymore with the internet, but tell us about this famous magazine spread you had. Well, when I was with the Raiders, I was approached by the editor of, or the publisher of, of Playgirl magazine. And you know, I was offered a pretty good sum of money and I decided to do it. And so I didn't, I chose not to do any frontal nudity. I wanted to keep, you know, some privacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back then it was, you know, you're young, you're dumb, you know, I did it. It was kind of a joke, um, but it became, you know, kind of a popular magazine and, um, it's kind of strange when you go to these autograph shows, you'll see these things stuck in front of the sign. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and I guess there were some ladies that liked it. So I just, you know, I was just one of those things you do as a kid and a uh, young man yeah. doesn't know any better. And I look back on it, it was harmless and it was kind of a sign of the times. Bobby Chandler followed me after that. So anyway, it wasn't uh, a good sum of money. I will say that, but it was, you know, was not, I didn't do it as a career move or anything like that. I wasn't going to try to be a porn star or anything. <laughs> so you're, you being a Houston guy now, um, yeah. what, what did you think about, I mean, I'll always consider you a Houston Oiler, no matter where you went afterwards. But w what are your thoughts about when uh, Houston lost their team? Well, first and foremost, in my heart, uh, I am a Houston Oiler, and my career ended when I was traded, as far as I'm concerned, because nothing ever ever happened after that. But we were we were the heart and soul of the Love You Blue. When, uh, when it was started and we, we had the best record. We're the only team that went deep into the playoffs and made the AFC championship. In fact, we're the only Houston team to do that. Uh, the Titans later on went to the Super Bowl and lost, but uh, with Steve McNair, Steve was the one that took them the furthest. 
but the Houston Oilers, when they left, it was, it was like a gut wrenching feeling for, for a former player. Because you play your whole career, you know, some people dream about that. I dreamt about being a professional athlete when I was six years old. I mean, I just, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I didn't care what it was, baseball, football, whatever, the only sports I excelled in. But coming here and going through the pains of the one in 13 seasons and five different coaches in, in four years and then going through all that and then finally getting respectability and making it to the AFC championship game in the toughest division, I think in the, in the NFL back then, the AFC central and for the team to leave, we have no, we have no loyalty to anybody. I mean, we, we're not Tennessee Titans and we're not Houston Texans. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that light, we don't have a team. I mean, you people, young people today, you, you tell them Houston Oilers, they go, well, what are you talking about? Who's that? But the people, your age group that were kids back when I played, back when we played, mm -hmm. there's not a place that I go in the city to this day. I don't get stopped by somebody that just wants to shake my hand and thank me for the years and love you blue. And you, you look in the thing about the Houston Oilers, they will never die. As long as the love you blue fan is still alive. We are in the minds and the hearts of all those people. And when I say all those people, there were like 750,000 of them. When we came back from both losses in 78, you couldn't find a parking space from the airport, 35 miles away, all the way to the Astrodome. And they packed the Astrodome with 50,000 people. But you couldn't find a parking place along the freeways, the beltways, all the way into town. There was no traffic on the freeways. People were on the side of the road waving bonbons, yelling, love you, blue. And I mean, to this day, it gives me goosebumps. I will never forget it. It was the most wonderful time. It was Camelot. And when I meet people today, and they shake my hand, they get that faraway look in their eyes. They become that teenage kid or that eight-year-old kid again, remembering their heroes. So that will never die until the last of us die. And uh, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a neat feeling. It's a, it's an anomaly because we have we have no association with any team, but we do love you blue. The what what you're talking about about running into people my age that were kids when you were playing, that's how I feel. It's like I'm having a conversation with someone that I used to pretend to be when I was young, and it's just I don't know if it's surreal or out of body experience, whatever you want to call it, but it's definitely definitely a pleasure. And just like you were talking about the Oilers leaving, I mean I became an Astros fan around '96. And that kind of got me uh, liking the Oilers. And I was pretty upset when they left. I tried to be a Titan fan, and that didn't happen. I just couldn't do it. And I just can't get into the Texans. I mean, I wish the Oilers would have stayed, uh, but they didn't. So what are you doing now? I know you have your own business or something going on, right? 
Yeah, I've got a little spice company. I was doing some uh, uh, brand representation for uh, brand ambassadorship for Insperity for about 15 years. And that has just ended here recently. And I'm currently looking for another brand ambassadorship. And been interviewed, doing some interviewing with some different companies. Got some leads on a few things. So I want to continue to work. I mean, I'm, you know, our pensions, our pensions from the NFL aren't that great. So it's kind of hard to live on that. But I'm in a position now where uh, I can live off that the rest of my life. But I'm 72 years old, but I'm a young 72. And I, I like to, I like to work with people. I like to get into marketing with people and new business development with different companies. So something like that. So I'm just kind of temporarily unemployed, but looking and uh, hopefully something will come along here in the near future. Well, Mr. Pastorini, it's been a huge pleasure for me. And um, I, I really appreciate you doing this. I mean, it was, it was an honor speaking to you today. Well, Rob, let me tell you something. I appreciate your imitating me when you were younger because that's the ultimate compliment an athlete can ever have is the respect of his fans. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. All the broken ribs and the pulled muscles and the concussions and everything else. It's a a wonderful feeling. and, And I appreciate your support and I appreciate all the love your blue fans support that we have on Facebook and, uh, y'all were the greatest fans ever. And you made it special for us to play in front of you. And it was an honor. And uh, for that, I'm thankful. Well, I'd like to thank all of you guys for tuning in to episode number 500. And I couldn't have picked a better guest. And I couldn't have been lucky to get a better guest than Mr. Dan Pastorini. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being loyal fans. 500 episodes. We'll see you next time on Astros Baseball. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.